Well, good afternoon, brethren, and welcome to Wednesday night Bible study. I apologize for the poor video quality, and I'm just hoping that the sound quality is decent. Uh, I'm on the road, and I forgot to pack my um, I forgot to pack my uh, camera as well as my uh, microphone, so, so I don't have the high quality. So I'll just look for the text as I open with prayer here. I'll look for your text comments to tell me whether or not uh, you can hear me okay. And I know that uh, my, my camera just needs some adjusting, so hopefully that is good. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and open with prayer, and uh, you can just let me know if you can, uh, if you can hear me okay. Uh, Heavenly Father, we pause before beginning our study, as we always do, because we want to invite your presence uh, into our study. Uh, into our hearts, into our minds. Uh, the times are very serious, Father, but we have your word. We are encouraged by your word. We are fed by your word. And so we're asking, Father, that you'll bless our study, bless those who tune in live, as well as those who will tune in later. And uh, we just thank you so much, Father, for the faithful prophets, the faithful witnesses, and the most faithful of all witnesses, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, brethren, so uh, just let me check the... Oh, sound is good. Okay, great. So I was thinking if the sound wasn't great, then I would switch and maybe we'd just do a Q&A format. But uh, as long as the sound is great, I think uh, whether you can see me clearly or not is uh, secondary. But I think I would like to do a Q&A format perhaps next week uh, with Pastor Murray's permission. Uh, we will spend some time uh, just, you know, reviewing the content that we've covered so far. So if you do have questions, uh, please feel free to uh, join in next week, both Facebook, uh, YouTube, and also we can, uh, with the chat, Facebook, and also YouTube, we'll be able to look at your comments and um, uh, just respond to, you know, is this sinking in or any questions, any concerns? We can go ahead and uh, answer those. So let's, uh, let's begin the study. And what I want to do, I want to cover Isaiah 47, verse 1. And I don't think I'll get much beyond that. We're in chapter 47 now. But I think that I will... Um, I just want to review the story flow. What, what is the overarching narrative that we are working with or working within? And then I think there is a question, because I've been spending so much time emphasizing uh, God's covenant and His commitment to Israel, as well as specifically to Judah and Jerusalem. And, and Isaiah says this is his vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So I've been spending so much time on that, that I think there's, it begs the question, what about Christians? Where do we fit in all of this? And so I want to spend some time looking at the overarching narrative, and then spend a bit of time talking about the role of Christians, and then let's get into Isaiah 47 verse 1. And uh, if there are questions, then God willing, Next week, we'll spend some time just sort of recapping where we've been, what we're understanding, and answering any questions or addressing any comments or concerns. So in terms of the overarching story, and what I love about Isaiah, as I've mentioned many times, it's a Bible within the Bible. Therefore, everything from Genesis to Revelation, if we're understanding it correctly, it will be represented in some way, shape, or form within Isaiah. So, so that's sort of like a check and a balance. And I mentioned last week how uh, Isaiah was a scroll that was found during the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
and it was uh, intact except for a minor damage to a couple of passages, and, and it was a thousand years older than the oldest manuscript known at the time uh, for Isaiah, and it matched perfectly. So we can see very clearly that we um, we can see very clearly that we have a book fully preserved in Isaiah, which is a Bible within the Bible. So anytime we're looking at other verses in the Bible, excuse me, and somebody wants to say to us, "Oh, that verse has been corrupted. That book has been corrupted," we just have to run it through Isaiah. Isaiah is like this uh, reconciliation check that if it, hey, if Isaiah said it. Uh, because he, he, see, he saw everything from Genesis to Revelation because the Lord showed him that he's the Alpha and Omega, that he declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times that which is not yet done, saying, my counsel, my plans, my will, my purposes shall stand. So the overarching story then is, um, and, and I'm just getting uh, a note here that you cannot read the scripture. Maybe just let me know if, if the scripture is okay here, but I'll go ahead and read. Uh, from Judges, we, we pick up the story. We can go, again, Isaiah is this check and balance. So we can go various places. But in, in Judges, we see here, An angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bokim and said, speaking to Israel, I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you unto the land which I swore unto your fathers. So this is land that Israel inherited land that God swore unto their fathers. God committed himself to provide this land to the fathers. But that's not all. Look at this. And I said, this is the God who, uh, he never goes back on his word. He never goes back on his promise. So in addition to bringing Israel into the land that he swore unto the fathers, he said, I will what? Never. That's a big word. That's a big word that none of us can pull off. Only, only God can pull it off. He said, I will never break my covenant with you. And let me see if I just make this text a little bigger if it helps. He said, I will never. That's a big word. So he said to Israel, I will never break my covenant with you. Please let that soak in. This is the God of the everlasting covenant with Israel. He said he will never, ever, ever break his covenant with you. And you shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. So, so he's bringing them into this land. He's never going to break the covenant. But then he says to them, you must never, uh, so you shall not make a league or a collusion uh, with the inhabitants of the land. You shall throw down their altars so instead of making a league with them, throw down their altars, their worship systems, but you have not obeyed my voice. So this is the problem. So uh, Israel went into the land that was promised to them, that God said he'll never break his covenant. Then he said, tear down their altars. But then he says, look at this. You have not obeyed my voice. This is the story of Israel. They have not obeyed his voice. Why have you done this? So, so God was setting them up to be the, the, the head nation of all the world, but they didn't obey him. They didn't. They, instead, they colluded with the people in the land. Therefore, I also said, so I said that I will never break my covenant with you. You disobeyed me. So I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides 
and their gods shall be a snare unto you. So in addition to uh, never breaking the covenant, so that's one condition, he's not going to break the covenant, but now he says, because you disobeyed me, and you didn't drive these people out of the land, then what? They're going to be thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. And, and I'm saying this because I think many of you know I, I have studied extensively uh, Islam, uh, the Quran, the Hadith, and the Sirah. And most people, they just can't be bothered. And it's like this thing is spreading all over the world. It, it is, the, the Bible is the most important book, of course. It's the Word of God. The Quran, the Hadith, and the Sirah, these are the most impactful books right now because mankind has rejected God. They don't care about the Bible. They're trying to trash the Bible. They're trying to say the Bible is nothing. But they're trying to uphold the Quran as if this is something. And so it is the most influential book uh, in, in our end time. And so it would behoove us to understand what's in it. And when people want to hold it up as some great holy religious text, we need to be knowledgeable about what's actually in there. But what's interesting about this is he says their gods will be a snare to Israel and to Judah. Their gods are consolidated in the Quran, and the Hadith and the Sirah. Because Muhammad came along, told them to stop worshipping all of these gods that, that, that are basically from the neighbors of Israel, that Israel was to, supposed to vanquish, uh, told them to, to stop worshipping all the multiple gods, consolidated all of those gods into one. That there's no God except Allah. He didn't, he didn't say there's no God except Yahweh. And they were already worshipping Allah as the head of all these gods. And he just consolidated all of that into one, but took all of those practices that were associated with all of these gods and consolidated the practices into one. And it's called a religion, but it's not a religion. It's a, it's a political ideology that has a religious mask. Uh, and so these gods that were a snare to them anciently have been consolidated and rolled up into this uh, uh, political ideology called Islam. And it will continue to be a snare. So as it was in the beginning, so shall it be in the end. Now, that's the setup we see in Judges, that they should have gone into the land. God has covenanted with their fathers to give them this land. He will never break the covenant. They disobeyed. So God says, okay, I, I also say this, that their gods, they're going to be a thorn in your side, and their gods will be a snare unto you. And so that's, that's anciently all the way up until he returns. Now, how does he make good on his promise that he will never break his covenant? Moses wrote that in Deuteronomy. We've covered it several times in Deuteronomy 30. Uh, that then the Lord your God will turn your captivity and have compassion on you. So because you didn't drive these people out of the land, they're going to get the upper hand on you. They're going to take you captive, but God will have mercy on you uh, because he's never going to break his covenant. So you're going to be punished, but then you're going to be brought back. So then the Lord God will turn your, turn your captivity or he'll address your captivity and have compassion on you and will return and gather you from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. So these nations are going to take Israel and Judah captive and spread them out and sell them as slaves to nations all around the world. It's happened anciently. What happened anciently was a pattern. That's what's going to happen in the future. If any of yours be driven out unto the utmost parts of heaven, from there will the Lord your God gather you, and from there will he fetch you. So this is not talking about Christians. This is talking about 
Israel and Judah, the physical descendants of the man known as Jacob, the 12 tribes, his, his 12 sons, and the physical descendants from that man, are going to be punished severely because of their idolatry, because of their rebellion, because of their stubbornness. But because God says, I'll never break my covenant with you, after they have been punished and driven to repentance, he's then going to gather them and put them back in the land. We're not talking about Christians, we're talking about Israelites. And not, not, the, not the people that we call, the nation we call Israel today, which is uh, really the one, one of the 12 tribes, the tribe of Judah, which the Zionist movement decided to call that land Israel. But when I say Israel, I'm talking about the man called Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, who had 12 sons, Judah being only one of those 12 sons. But all 12, all 12 tribes are the Israelites. And so we need to recognize Judah. We need to know where Judah is today. And people say, oh, the people in the land, they're, they're not the real Jews. We're the real Jews. Well, we'll know who the real Jews are when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies. And whoever the people are in the land at the time when it's surrounded by armies, those are the real Jews, because those are the people that God is setting out to punish. So if, you're, if you claim to be a real Jew, then as this anti-Semitism anti heats up all around the world, and Jews begin to realize they cannot live in these nations anymore, and they begin to migrate and go to Israel, because that's the one place where they can be safe, and specifically uh, is, uh, J Jerusalem, that's actually the setup for the severe punishment that they're going to receive. So for all those people who claim that they are the Jews, fine, you're going to be severely punished because the Jews have rejected Christ. They've rejected their Lord. And so uh, they will be gathered. It began in 1948, but they are being gathered in that land to be punished. And all these, uh, I, I would say, misinformed, misled Christians who believe they've got to help Jews to go to this land called Israel uh, because that's going to be fulfilling the prophecy this is incorrect. God doesn't need help in gathering his people. He's going to gather them when he returns. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed. So this is what's going to, so the people that God brings into the land, these are the people that their fathers were in the land previously. And you shall possess it as opposed to your enemies. Your enemies are going to possess it for a while, but then God's going to correct that, drive the enemies out, and you will possess the land. And he will do you good and multiply you above your fathers. So that is the story of Israel. That's the baseline story. It's in the Torah. It's in the prophets. It, 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 that, that's the baseline. And we cannot get around it. And Isaiah validates this. When we read Isaiah, that's the, that's the story that we see. Okay, that's Israel and Judah. Now, what about Christians? So before I answer the question, what about Christians, let me first answer the question, what about Satan? Because by asking, answering the question, what about Satan, it's going to set up what I need to answer the question, what about Christians? So Satan, remember here in Isaiah 14, this is a passage we're very familiar with. He says, speaking of Lucifer, uh, which became the adversary, for you said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. So this is, this, is, this is where sin began, and this is the desire of this glorious being that was on earth, but felt uh, uh, dis disillusioned or, or disenfranchised, and felt that he needed to get back into heaven and needed to overthrow Yahweh. 
And so, for you said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. And uh, it is interesting, uh, just uh, tr trivia, uh, how should I say, a uh, little, little fact, uh, that ascend is the Hebrew word Allah. And we know that Ishmael came out of uh, Abraham. And so, it's, maybe it's possible through uh, etymology that Allah means high to ascend. And so, Allah would be the highest God. Uh, and it really is the worship of Satan. Uh, but there's, I don't have any proof of that. It's just interesting that Allah, uh, ascend is the Hebrew word Allah. For you have said in your heart, I will Allah, or I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. And we'll go into that another time when we, when we study Isaiah 14, the sides of the north. But you see this real deep motivation, this, this earnestness, this drive, this motivation to be, at a, a, to be high, to be the most high. In fact, he says this, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. So he's studying Yahweh and, and he's thinking that he, he's better. He should be the most high. So he wants to knock the most high off his throne and he wants to be like the most high. Everything that he has seen in the heavenly places, he is now being informed by that in setting up his kingdom. Remember that Satan is not a creator. He's a destroyer. He cannot create, he destroys. And, and he, he imitates. So, so what he does, he, what he sees, he imitates. He's not a creative being, or he's no longer a creative being. So this is a big clue for us, that it means that we can look at what Satan is doing and get some level of insight that we might not have otherwise gotten into what he saw when he was in the heavenly places, how he saw Yahweh operate. So I say that then to go to Ephesians. And in Ephesians 6, uh, Paul tells us through the Ephesian church that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against what? Against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness, of the darkness of this world. So there are principalities, there are powers, there are rulers. So what we understand from this is that in addition to the hierarchies that we see here on earth, different kingdoms, empires, uh, nations, uh, and they all have hierarchical structure. In addition to all of that, Paul is giving us some understanding that Satan has a spiritual hierarchy, that over above the human powers, there are spiritual powers. And these, these spiritual powers are actual rulers, that they rule over the earth, that Satan is the god of this world, but it's not just Satan and the world. It's Satan and a whole hierarchy under him that together is over the world. And, and because it's his world, it's a, there's darkness and against spiritual wickedness in high places. So there are high places, and the spiritual wickedness is in those high places. Now, we go to Daniel to see this in action. Remember when Gabriel was trying to get to uh, Daniel to answer his prayer and his fasting? In Daniel 10, 13, uh, Gabriel says, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. This is a spiritual battle. Daniel's in Persia. There's a king of Persia, and then the angel, Gabriel, is trying to come to Daniel, 
but there is a prince, a chief, over the kingdom of Persia that is preventing Gabriel from getting to Daniel for three weeks. But, lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. And I remained there with the kings of Persia. So all of this we can see now that there's this whole empire, the most powerful empire at the time of, of Persia, with this you know, powerful ruler, but over the physical ruler is this whole spiritual realm. Now, that we have to remember, Satan saw something in the heavenly places, and he wants to be like the Most High, and he's an imitator, not a creator. So he, he, this, he doesn't come up with this. He's looking at what he sees God do, and he's trying to be like the Most High. Okay, this helps us answer the question, what about Christians? When we look at the righteousness that God is going to put in the earth, and by that I mean putting the earth right, and by that I mean establishing Israel as the head nation. Israel and Judah must be the head nation. They must be established in Jerusalem. And the whole world must look to Jerusalem for salvation. And this will be a, a kingdom of priests. That these physical human beings will be a kingdom of priests. They will observe the holy days. And nations around the world will come to them to, be, to have their relationship with Yahweh facilitated. Yeah, that's what's happening on the earth. This is not Christian. Christians are first fruits. Christians, by this miraculous mercy of God, when he came, he pulled a subset of Judah unto himself, an inner circle that he infused with the Holy Spirit as first fruits. That as much as he's going to punish Judah and he's going to punish Israel, while that punishment, because it's his, his covenant, it's his word, he cannot go back on his word, so while that punishment has to take place, at the very same time, simultaneously, he has pulled out a set of first fruits. And he said to this first fruits, you get to go straight to the finish line. That everybody else is going to have to go through a process that is ultimately going to take over a thousand years before they can be born into my family. In order to save Israel and Judah and ultimately all mankind, I have to come into the earth, live as a faithful Israelite by all the word of God, uh, fulfill the covenant, and legally inherit the land, not take it, instead take the punishment of Israel and Judah so that they, if they accept me as a savior, they can now legally inherit the covenant and, and the, the covenant promises. Um, and at the same time, as I sacrifice myself and then go into the heavens, I'm going to have a body, my, my body will remain on earth through this set of first fruits who will do my will in the earth and set up the, uh, or, or enable, help me to uh, enable the redemption process of my people. So that's what Christians are. We are the first fruits from within Judah. And if we are Gentiles, we've been grafted in as now spiritual Jews. So, so Christians are these first fruits that are the body of God. We are the members of Christ. Christ is the head. We are the body doing Christ's work of redemption. We go straight to the finish line. When Christ returns, we're born into his family. And we oversee righteousness on the earth. The earth must be righteous that prior to his coming, and it has been upside down. 
Satan is being the, he is acting as the most high. Instead of Jerusalem being the capital of the earth, he has set up Babylon as he sees what God, he knows that there's going to be a city that the whole earth will be modeled after that city. And so that's exactly what he does. He sets up Babylon and that's his Jerusalem. And the whole world is modeled after Babylon. So that's what he's doing. And this whole sense you see here, like celebrity culture, that everybody cares about the celebrities. And I don't know who the latest celebrities are today, but I, I, let's just say the Kardashians as an example. I hear that. I don't know if they're still in vogue or not. But everybody cares about Kim Kardashian and Kanye West. And we've got magazines, what they're doing. And if they show up somewhere, people want to pay a lot of money and see them. And, and although they know nothing, we want to know what, who they voted for. And we want to be directed by them. Because uh, there's this uh, celebrity culture. Well, Satan knows that in the future, the high priest of God, those in the Melchizedekian order, will be the celebrities on earth. We will appear and disappear, and we will guide mankind. And everybody will be very fascinated by these beings who used to be human, who are now in the family of God, who appear and disappear, and we are very creative and we do different things, and, and they will want to know, oh, uh, this such and such a, a saint is coming to our nation and is, is doing a presentation or whatever it is, and that's going to be, he knows that. So he's, he takes that and perverts it and points us to Hollywood, which is a derivation of Babylon. Uh, we look at, uh, I mentioned the city, but here now, in uh, so, so the city of Babylon, to, to replicate um, a Jerusalem, that's, that's his earthly Jerusalem in a sense, his city that he wants everything modeled after. Uh, so we see here, uh, for the people, this is Isaiah 30, 19. So the people are the physical human beings that God is setting about to redeem, the people that we're preaching good news to, that their God reigns. He says, the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. So uh, much to the devil's chagrin, and much to the chagrin of his puppets and his, his, his followers, the people, God's people, shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. That's, that's what's going to happen. And that's God's counsel, that's God's plan, and that's what's going to happen. That's his purpose. You shall weep no more. So there's going to be a whole bunch of weeping. It's going, to be hor- it's going to be horrendous. But then it's going to stop. He will be very gracious unto you at the voice of your cry. So right now he hides himself and they're going to be crying out and he's not listening to them. But he will be very gracious unto the voice of their cry. When he shall hear it, he will answer you. So this whole relationship is going to be uh, healed. There's going to be a, a healed relationship between God and his people. And listen to this, verse 20. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction. So these people are going to get the bread of adversity and they're going to get the water of affliction. So bread and water, you think that that would be a comforting thing. No, there's no comfort. You're going to get adversity and you're going to get affliction. But although, because he's never going to break his covenant, although you get the bread of adversity, and although you get the water of affliction, yet shall not your teachers be removed into a corner anymore. These, this, this is us. This is the first fruits. These are the people who get to go straight to the finish line. And we're born into the family of God, and the second death has no power over us whatsoever. We are now these overseers of the earth. The same way that the Satan, Satan understands this. 
and he's trying to be like the Most High. So he has his spiritual entities in a hierarchy over the city. So if you go to, if I say to you, uh, San Francisco, there's a certain image of debauchery and there's a certain characteristic that everybody understands is in San Francisco, which is different than if I say Las Vegas or if I say Rio de Janeiro or dare I say Jerusalem today, that these different cities and countries have different characteristics because of the spiritual entities and the personalities and the characteristics of these spiritual entities that are ruling over these cities. But we as Christians, God is going to say, you've been faithful over much. Here's 10 cities. Here are five cities. And those 10, five, one single city, whole empires that we are over will have our nature. They'll have, our pers- they'll have a certain tone that in the future, and I don't know that it would be called San Francisco, I doubt it, but let's say, because of the spiritual, the positive spiritual influence over that city, it will have a different characteristic than if we say Rio de Janeiro, and certainly if we say Jerusalem, where Jesus Christ himself will reign. So this is the role of the first fruits. We're not caught up on the human level. Right now with the Holy Spirit, we have been lifted up to the God plane. And we cannot have this sort of sectarian uh, um, focus, this kind of uh, identity politics. We shouldn't be seduced by identity politics because we're not on the human plane. We can look at the human condition and not be sucked into it because we're operating on the God plane. And so when all of this... so so. These teachers, these first fruit teachers, Christians, will appear. And we're going to help help God set the world right. So although they have adversity and affliction, in the future, their teachers will not be hidden anymore. It's a God who hides himself from them, but now he's going to be in a full relationship with them. And their teachers will be available to them. Yet shall not your teachers be removed into a corner anymore, but your eyes shall see your teachers. We will appear to them, and they will see us, and, and we will teach them. And your ears, so remember, these people are cursed, that seeing they can't see, hearing they can't hear, and their heart has grown dull. But God's going to lift that curse, and they're actually going to see their teachers, and, and they're going to hear, and your ears shall hear a word behind you, saying, this is the way, walk you in it when you turn to the right hand and when you turn to the left. It's so important to God that the earth be righteous. And it's not righteous if Israel and Judah are not the head nation. Israel and Judah have to come together and they have to be the head nation, this kingdom of priests that the rest of the world looks unto and sees that God is glorified in Israel. And when that happens, the world is right. But that means that Israel needs to be going through what we're going through now, receiving the Holy Spirit, learning about God, being in a position where we can teach others about God, but we have to be taught so that we can then teach others. So Israel will be taught by Christians, first fruits. And when they start going off stray, because they have to be the righteous nation, we're going to appear, teach them, make sure that they get on the right track so that they in fact can then teach others, and lead the worship of Yahweh for the whole world. Okay, so all of that, I just wanted to give a little bit of background as we come now into chapter 47. 
Uh, so what I wanted to get across, hopefully it's very clear, and if there are questions, we can answer them in the chat tonight, but certainly, uh, God willing, Murray and I will be available next week. Just trying to hit the pause button uh, a little bit and a um, bit, bit of Q&A, and then maybe we'll do a, uh, f maybe finish off chapter 47. It's not, a, it's not a long chapter. So we have the narrative. What is God doing? We have to view the world through the lens of God. So when we see uh, what's going on in the Middle East today, when we see certain powers rising in the Middle East, when we see others losing their influence, we have to view it through this story. Just this week, uh, yesterday, today's, uh, yes, yesterday, um, 150, 160 nations have signed the UN Global Compact for Safe, Orderly, and Regular Migration. So for those of you viewing from America or Eastern Europe or Israel, uh, your nation, Australia, your nations have pulled out and said, no way. Uh, but our nation, Canada, we are the chief architect. Uh, our foreign minister, Ahmed Hussein, a Somalian Muslim, and our prime minister, who, if he's not a Muslim, uh, which I think it's obvious he is, but if he's not, uh, he's certainly a Muslim sympathizer. And uh, the, together, they are leading the charge on this global compact for UN mi uh, for, for uh, migration, UN global compact for migration, uh, a safe, orderly, and regular migration. You need to read this. Uh, most people, again, if you want to hide something, hide it in a book, write, write it down, nobody cares. And, and this thing is happening secretly. Nobody, I asked a few Canadians, have you heard of this? They haven't even heard of it. And it was signed yesterday. And basically what it means is Canada no longer has borders. That there's no such thing as illegal uh, immigration. In fact, there's no such thing as immigration. There's just migration. And we just said, we, we have to make it safe and orderly. We have to pay for it. Uh, anybody anywhere in the world who wants to come to Canada, it is their human right to do so. And Canadians have to foot the bill to bring them here and make sure that they get here safely. And when they get here, make sure that they have all access to all the benefits. And we also have to advertise our welfare system. Just make sure that it's like going to a restaurant and looking at a menu. And so looking at the different countries and looking at their various welfare systems. So as a migrant, I can choose which country has the best welfare system. And when they get here, then it's, they have a human right to bring their, their entire family over regardless of skill level. It doesn't matter that they can't read, write, that they have no, no value to offer to the country. If they are a family member, then it is their human right to come here. There is no discussion around uh, terrorism, that these the family members could be terrorists, that one family member is okay, but another family member is a terrorist. doesn't matter. We have to pay to bring them here. We have to uh, finance them. We have to give them, make sure they have good legal representation so that they know their rights, and we have to pay for that legal representation. It, we, the media has to speak positively about uh, migration. It could be a criminal offense if they don't. Uh, and certainly funding will be given to those media outlets that do speak in a propaganda positive way about migration. This is all insanity. And it, it, it assumes that economies will be robust forever and that we can just, there's a bottomless pit of money and we can, no matter what, we can always afford to just keep spending more and more. And it also assumes that there are no bad actors in the world and that the world will never go to war. Every century has had global warfare. And so we've just gone, what, 70 years without any global war? I think we're, we're, we're overdue. And so how, how do you handle war when your enemies are in your land? So this is, uh, we have a, a, a young, immature person 
running our country that just doesn't have wisdom and is being seduced and probably really doesn't care about the country anymore, uh, has bigger sights on this globalist agenda. And by the way, uh, at CGI.org, uh, this week, I think it just was released today, uh, Bill Watson has done a news, news uh, update on nationalism and globalism. And I think we, all of us as Christians need to understand this. So go to CGI.org and look, at, it'll be on the homepage if you're, if you're studying it this week. But if you're in the archive, uh, just go through the menu and look for the uh, news updates. And, and look for this one on globalism and nationalism. I think a lot of us are not, we're getting caught up in politics or, or we're indifferent to politics. When I think if we have a biblical view, as Bill lays out a very clear argument about globalism and nationalism, that's going to help us a great deal. Okay. So hopefully that helps, and again, you know, we, we just need to be clear and just read the scriptures very carefully. And, and what I like to do with the scriptures is, I like, when I read the scriptures, I like to pretend I was never born, that I, I don't exist, because the scriptures don't depend on me, and this whole world doesn't, the whole universe doesn't depend on my existence. So I read the scriptures with the question, what if I didn't exist? I know a lot of people kind of open the Bible to any page, and whatever page they land on, it's always about them. And the Bible was written for them, and, and they, the, the, whole, the whole text, the whole universe surrounds them. We can't be like this. Narcissism blinds us. So I just want to know, what does the text say? And then when I understand what the text says, then I ask myself the question, okay, how does this apply to me? And that just brings clarity. So let's just get now back into the text, Isaiah 47. What does it say? So he says here, in Isaiah 47, verse 1, he says, come down and sit in the dust. Wow. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Now, this certainly is the, 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 the woman spoken of in Revelation. And we'll get into that a little bit more. It says, come down. So, so she was up and she was sitting on a throne. And now Isaiah says to her, uh, come down. So remember, this is the comfort. Comfort my people began in, in chapter 40. And this is part of the comfort that the persecutor has now been vanquished. Come down and sit in the dust. So sitting in the dust in the Middle East is a clear sign of defeat and humiliation. So come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. So virgin daughter implies that she has not known defeat prior to this. So, so this is a, a new thing for her. Now she's, she's been defeated, uh, virgin, and it's the daughter of Babylon. So, so the way we would say the children of Israel. So Israel is the progenitor, and then these are the descendants. So she's the daughter of Babylon. And I think we're all clear that Babylon is, is Satan's center. And she's now a derivative, she's a descendant of Babylon. Virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground. So up there, perched on your throne, sit on the ground. There is no throne. And there is, is um, in italics, not there in the original language, but sit on the ground, no throne. So the throne has been taken away. O daughter of the Chaldeans. She's the daughter of the Chaldeans. And again, want to be very clear, where is Chaldea today? So Chaldea, the media and Persia is what we know today as Iran. So Persia has been renamed Iran, but Chaldea is Iraq. So once you cross over, you're now uh, the, the river. Now you're into Iraq. So the Chaldeans today, their children would be the Iraqis. 
So the Babylonians of ancient time would be the Iraqis today. So he says to these people, and so if we were to look at uh, a more current map, we can see that Media and Persia is now called Iran, but the area of Babylonia we now call uh, Iraq. So Iraq, Syria, that, that area. Okay. He says, uh, sit on the ground, there is no throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called tender and delicate. So this is something that, uh, a system that we were looking up to that was just very, very wealthy, very refined, had all the jewelry and gold and treasure, and that's over. So that, that is completely over. You're now sitting in the dust and exposed. Now, this Babylon, she's the daughter of Babylon, it goes all the way back to Genesis 10 and 11. But in Genesis 11, we see the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. So this is this globalist agenda. It hasn't changed as it was in the beginning. That's everything that was in the beginning, Genesis, it all comes back in Revelation. And, and that's the thread. And so we have to make sure we see the thread. So one language, one speech, that's where we're heading through technology. And it's, I just shared ideology. The world has to be global. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east, where did they go? That they found a plain in the land of Shinar. This is in Iraq. So this, this plain uh, in the land of Shinar, this is the focal point. This is where it all began. This is really Satan's headquarters. There's, a, there's, a, there's something about this spot. And they dwelt there. So that's where they dwelt, in Shinar, in Iraq. Now, why does that matter? So that was Genesis 11, that's where it all started. But this passage in Zechariah 5 is very, very critical. What does it say in Zechariah 5? Let's read it together. Then the angel that talked with me, so this is a, an angel talking to Zechariah. And so all these prophets, they're all seeing the same thing. And that's, again, the power of Isaiah. Everything has to reconcile with Isaiah. So he says, um, Then the angel that talked with me went forth, and said, up, said unto me, Lift up now your eyes. So he needs to go and look at something. Lift up now your eyes and see what is this that goes forth. So Zechariah is minding his own business. This angel comes to him and says, Look, look up, look over there. What do you see? So he sees something going forth. What is it? And I said, What is it? And he said, This is an ephah that goes forth. So an ephah in the Hebrew language is a, a unit of measure. It, it, I believe it's the biggest unit of measure for dry goods. So if you were measuring grain and you wanted the, the biggest amount, you would ask for an ephah. So it's a, it's a, it's a container then that can hold a lot. It's a, it's a measurement. It's a big measurement. He said, so he said, so I said, well, what is it? I said, Go, he says, look at something. So Zechariah says, what is it? He says, it's an ephah that goes forth. He said, moreover, this is their resemblance through all the earth. So there's something about this ephah that goes forth that is resembled through all the earth. Remember we said that Jerusalem will be modeled throughout all the earth. Satan knows that. He wants to be like the Most High. So he wants Babylon to be modeled throughout all the earth. So the whole earth is really following a Babylonian system today. 
and and Zechariah is seeing that this ephah, it's a it's a measure, it's really a measure of wickedness, that this wickedness it's patterned all over the world. The whole earth is sick, and the whole earth is following this wickedness. So he says this is their resemblance through all the earth. And behold, there was lifted up a talent of lead. So this seems like the lid now. This talent of lead is lifted up. And this is a woman that sits in the midst of the ephah. So this is a very, very interesting vision that the prophet has. That he sees an ephah. That ephah is the resemblance of wickedness. And it's, it's, it's patterned all over the earth. And then somebody lifts up a talent of lead. So a very heavy lid is lifted up. And he sees a woman sitting in the midst of the ephah. And he said, this is wickedness. So this woman is wickedness. And we know that Isaiah 47 is saying to this daughter of Babylon, come down off the throne and sit in the dust. And as it was in the beginning, that's how it will be in the end. And so all of this begins with this woman, uh, Semiramis, really, with Nimrod, who began all of this wickedness. Uh, it, it is um, uh, symbolized by this woman. He said, this is wickedness. And remember, it's resembled through all the earth. And he cast it into the midst of the ephah. So he takes, this is really the source of it all, humanly, and throws her into the middle of the ephah. And he cast the weight of the lead upon the mouth thereof. So he locks her inside. So this, this, this wickedness of this ephah has spread throughout the whole earth. This woman seems to be the source of it. She's thrown into the ephah. The, the heavy lead top is put on it to make sure she's contained within it. Then lifted I up my eyes and looked. And behold, there came out two women, and the wind was in their wings. For they had wings like the wings of a stork. So this is really interesting now, because this woman, once she is, and this this image is incorrect because it's showing the woman, but the lid is on top and so that she can't get out. But there's these two uh, beings that have wings, like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heaven. And what's interesting about storks, if you understand their migration pattern, they will migrate and they'll go very far, but then they do not, it says they do not find peace or rest until they return to their original land. So they will migrate very, very far away, but they will not be at peace in terms of being hunted by predators or whatever. They will not be at peace until they come back to their original land. So these have the wings of a stork. They find this woman, they put her in the ephah, and they're bringing her back somewhere. Where are they bringing her back? Then said I to the angel that talked with me, where do these carry the ephah? So he sees them carrying the ephah, and so he asked the angel, where are they taking the ephah and the woman inside? Listen to verse 11. And this is what I really wanted to get to. And he said unto me, to build it, he said unto me, to build it a house in the land of Shinar. Well, wait a minute. 
Wasn't Shinar the place where those people originally settled and they dwelt there and they built the Tower of Babylon there? So where, where are they taking this woman in the ephah? He said, to build it a house in the land of Shinar, and it shall be established and set there upon her own base. So that is the key, that this wickedness, he, he, he sees the ephah, and he says, what is that? And he says, this, this, the, this ephah, the, the wickedness that's in it, has been patterned all over the world. But then when they lift the lead, they put the woman, he says, this is wickedness. He puts this wickedness in the ephah, covers it, and then these stork-like creatures who, re who don't find peace until they return to their original habitat, uh, they come along and they take the ephah. Zechariah says, where are they taking this wickedness? They're taking it back to Shinar. And it shall be established and set there upon her own base. So this Babylonian system, that has spread throughout the world, in the end time, it's going to return to its own base. So Iraq, the land of Shinar, will feature very prominently in the end time. So we can't get around this. This is very clear that whatever notion we have of Bob, the Babylonian system, it is very clear that uh, it is going to return to its base. The wickedness will go back to where it originated, in the land of Shinar. Now, the Chaldeans, so these are the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, we know that they are going to be used by God in the end to punish Israel. And that's Habakkuk says, uh, when God is answering him, why, why don't you do anything about the wickedness that I see? He says, look out at the heathen. I am doing something. Look out at the heathen and regard and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days which you will not believe though it be told you. So God calls this his short work. He calls it his strange work. Here through Habakkuk, he calls it his unbelievable work. That if, if he tells Habakkuk what it is he's going to do, Habakkuk won't believe him. And, and in fact, that plays out. God shares with him what he's going to do. And Habakkuk is like, how can you do this? It's not, how, how can you use somebody who's, who's more wicked to punish us who are wicked, but they're even more wicked. How could you do this? Because Habakkuk just can't digest it. He says, I'm going to do this work, which you will not believe, though it be told you. For lo, what, so what is the work? People make up, I say, some false prophets and false teachers saying that they are this special work. And so they build this whole narrative around themselves that God is using them to do this special work. God tells us what the special work is. This work that is unbelievable is in verse 6. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans. So that is what God is doing. He's going to punish his people and he's raising up the people from the land of Shinar. He's raising up the people from Chaldea. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. So they're going to have some kind of ideology that says we have a right to land. And so this whole global compact for safe, orderly, and regular migration, where people can now spread out and come into the Israelite lands to take them over. And, and Israel is just stupid. They don't know what they're doing, but they're going to be severely punished. And so they're going to possess these places that are not theirs. That's what they do. They are terrible and dreadful. 
their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. In other words, their judgment and their dignity does not come from God. They have their own system. They have their own definition of righteousness. And that definition of righteousness, Christ says that those who kill you will think that they're doing God's service. Because they have their own judgment. They have their own dignity. They have their own independent concept of righteousness. So it proceeds of themselves. Now, this ties into Revelation. And, and let's, let's talk about uh, Revelation for a bit. Now, we're going, we're, when we talk about um, prophecy, particularly Revelation, uh, there's a lot of, you know, speculation. And so this is just for your consideration. I'm not saying this is so. I'm just reading the scripture and trying to see what does the scripture say and how does it make sense. So I'm going to share with you how it makes sense to me. I'm not saying this is so. I'm saying let's just keep checking. Let's, let's keep looking. Um, let's not get locked into any particular paradigm when it comes to prophecy. Let's keep our mind open. You know, when, when, when Christ came, the people he came to were locked into a certain paradigm. And so they couldn't recognize him. Even John himself, the, the, John the Baptist, was unsure. And he sent his disciples to find out, are you the one? Or do we look for another? And the way Christ answered, in fact, he didn't answer. Instead, he healed, he, he preached the gospel to the poor. And, and when he did these acts, then he said to the disciples of John, go back and tell John the things that you've seen. Meaning, John, search the scriptures. And John would know the scriptures. And so by looking at what Christ did, and comparing it to the scriptures, you'd realize this is the Messiah. He's not coming as the mighty Messiah the way we thought, but now the scriptures have opened up, and I see he's actually coming as the suffering servant. I think it in the same way, when we're trying to understand who is the beast, who is the beast, uh, it's the same concept. He, it, it's not going to come the way we expect. And so what we have to look at, what do they do? What, what are the acts? And then we search the scriptures to see, do those acts match? So this is just for your consideration. I'm not saying it's so. I'm just saying this is how I make sense of this. So upon her forehead. So Isaiah says it's the daughter of Babylon. So, so it is uh, symbolized as a woman. Upon her forehead was a name written. Mystery Babylon the Great. So the beast is Babylon. The, the scripture tells us that. And Isaiah tells us it's the daughter of the Chaldeans. So, so it is Babylon, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. So this is where we just saw in Zechariah, the woman, wherever she was, she needed to be carried by these stork-like creatures back to her base because she's the mother of harlots. And it all began in Shinar. And so she has to be carried back there because that's where the wickedness began and that's where it will be crushed. That's where it will end. So she's the mother, she's the originator of all of this wickedness. In Revelation 17, 18, And the woman which you saw is that great city. So in Isaiah 47, verse 1, he says, Come down off the throne. You're not going to be called delicate anymore, this daughter of the Chaldeans. And here in Revelation, it tells us very plainly that the woman is not a church. It's a great city. In fact, it's that great city. So the woman is Babylon, the city that goes back to her base. 
and the woman which you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So remember in Matthew 24, Christ says you're going to see wars, you're going to hear wars and rumors of wars. So the earth is in turmoil and uh, nations are rising up. Other nations are falling. They're going to war. They're trying to spread their territory. How foolish we are. Is, uh, basically, Canada is over. We've, we've, we've uh, uh, given up our borders so our enemies can come into the land. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, we have to pay for them, uh, a form of jizya, you could say. Bring them here and look after them fully. Uh, it's over for Canada. If we ever, when, when the war begins, we've got, we've got no way of defending ourselves. And they say, oh, the compact, it's, um, what's the word that they use? It's non-binding. What a bunch of nonsense. Non-binding becomes binding. Non-binding is just a way of saying, nothing to see here, as you were. Uh, carry on. No, no problem. There's no problem. Uh, but non-binding becomes uh, customary uh, for international law, which then influences domestic law. And judges will rule according to it, and ultimately it will become law. So this is the Babylon is the city, the woman is the city which reigns over the king. So through all of this wars and rumors of wars, uh, we're going to see Shinar, the land of Shinar, come back into a big influential role in the end time. And he says in chapter 18, and after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying that Babylon the Great is fallen. So finally, Babylon falls. And that's again why it's so important that it goes back to its base. And finally, it has fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils and the Hold of every foul spirit and cage of every unclean bird and hateful, hateful bird. Now, in Daniel chapter 2, now I think we're all familiar with this prophecy. So let's look at this one now. The Chaldeans answered the king. So the king had this vision. The Chaldeans answered before the king and said, There is not, so notice it's Chaldeans. So the king, this is Nebuchadnezzar. This is the city of Babylon. There is not a man upon the earth that can show the king's matter. Therefore there is no king, lord, nor ruler that asks such things of any magician or astrologer or any Chaldean. So this is the base, it's Chaldea. So Babylon is the head, He's, he, or Nebuchadnezzar is the head, he's over Chaldea. This is sort of Neo-Babylon because the original Babylon is in Genesis 10. But this is now the head of this, this image that he sees. And in Daniel 7, so, so this image that he saw, we see, it tells us that the head is Babylon, then the chest is Persia, the torso is Greece. The Bible never says Rome. We're the ones who say Rome. So we have said Rome, we said East, East and Western Rome. The Bible doesn't say that. And I personally, I don't believe this. Uh, people are looking for a united Europe to come back and be powerful. Europe is gone. The, the experts are looking at Europe and saying it's dead. It can, just demographically, it cannot come back. How, how on earth can it come back? Germany is gone. Italy is gone. France is gone. Uh, how are they going to come back? He says in Daniel 7, he sees the same vision, but this time, rather than see it from the viewpoint of, Babel, of, of Nebuchadnezzar, and by the way, why one of the another reasons we're concerned about Rome is Babylon is the head. 
or Nebuchadnezzar is the head. Persia and Greece reign over Babylon. They conquer Babylon. They replace Babylon. Rome never replaced Babylon. It never got that far. I think it was Emperor Hadrian who went into Babylon for about 30 days, collapsed from heat stroke, and had to give it up. And so Rome never ruled over Babylon. But this is the perception of Nebuchadnezzar. He's the head of gold, and this has to do with his land and the nations and the empires that replace him and rule over Babylon, because Babylon is the seat of wickedness of the earth. So, and, the, and there are many empires on the earth, but the God, God refers to those as beasts that interact with his people, Israel. So he doesn't talk about China. He doesn't talk about India. He doesn't talk about the great African empires that have nothing to do with Israel. These are beasts because they consume, oppress, and destroy Israel. Now, so the Bible never says Rome. We, we're the ones who read into the Bible Rome. So he says, after this, I saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast. This is, this is the, the iron. Uh, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly. And it had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. So nowhere does it say Rome. We're the ones who say Rome. In Revelation 13, he says, And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death. But his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. So this is quite interesting now. If we uh, just read on a little bit here, he says in 1311, And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. So there is another beast. There's a political beast, and there's a religious beast. So we have to be clear. There are two beasts. But this beast comes up out of the earth. The political beast comes out of the sea. The religious beast comes out of the earth. It has two horns like a lamb, and it speaks like a dragon. So it really is demonic but it plays the role of the Lamb. It, it, it re tries to represent Christ. And this second beast exercises all the power of the first beast before him. So in my view, and again, I'm speculating here, I'm not saying this is so, but the Roman Catholic Church, we, which we have before, we talked about the Holy Roman Empire, we saw the political beast as the Holy Roman Empire, and the a religious beast as the religious Catholic Church, I'd see these together. But I'm seeing now that, no, I don't think it's Rome, but there is a role for the religious beast. And it exercises all the power of the first beast before him, and, and it's no longer, it really isn't caring about its worship system. It's using its power to cause the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, which is the political beast, which pretends to be religious, but it's really political. But because it pretends to be religious, there is a worship aspect to it, whose deadly wound was healed. So something happened to this first beast that it died, and we thought it was over. And then it came back to life. Its, its wound was healed. And in fact, this month in Toronto, we have the uh, Islamic Rising Conference uh, downtown Toronto at the end of December. And there are, so here now in Revelation 7, let's talk about this. There are seven kings, five are fallen, one is. One is. So they, when at the time of John's writing, one of the political beasts is. 
five political beasts have fallen, and another is not yet come. And when it comes, it must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, this is the seventh beast, even he is the eighth and is of the seventh and goes into perdition. So let's just break this down a little bit again. Speculation. Uh, we're not saying this is so. I'm not saying this is so. I'm just saying the way things are unfolding, let's have an open mind. So if I look at this, seven beasts, which are actually, there's eight beasts. If we look back, five, one is, five have fallen. Who are the five that have fallen? So the beasts are the ones that oppress Israel. Even though Babylon, Nimrod, was the first, the, the foundation of all of this, the real, Israel was not yet a nation. So the first oppressor of Israel is Egypt, followed by Assyria. Then Babylon, this is Nebuchadnezzar. So Babylon's vision comes into play here. He, because he's seen as the head, it doesn't talk about Assyria and Egypt to, to Nebuchadnezzar. So it begins with these three for Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon. After Babylon comes the Medo-Persian Empire. After that comes the Greco-Macedonian Empire. And then that empire was replaced by Rome, which very much so persecuted Israel and Judah, and specifically Judah. And that scripture that says, one is, John was writing at the time of Rome. So five have already fallen. And the other, just as all of these beasts, Egypt is not the same as Assyria, Assyria is not the same as Babylon, Babylon is not the same as Persia, Persia is not the same as Greece, Greece is not the same as Rome. So this next beast cannot be the same as Rome. So we can't say that Rome died and then Rome's the seventh beast because there's actually eight beasts. So one is, and another, a completely separate one, is yet to come. And then this one is deadly wounds. It's going to be put to death. So in 1923, uh, the Ottoman Empire was finally crushed. And it died. And uh, the, the ruler there, Ataturk, he said, Islam is nonsense. We need to get rid of it. And he made Turkey uh, um, a secular nation because he just said, this is, back this is driving our people backward. And then it's healed now. It's come back. And Turkey is one of these growing powers that uh, uh, Recep Erdogan, he is just flexing his muscles and he's got a taste of, of global power that he's striving for. He's trying to be the bully in the Middle East. And so this is why wars begin, when nations are falling and other nations are rising. And so now we see America is weakening. I mean, Donald Trump, God bless him, he's doing his best to hold on to America. He's not going to be there for long. And uh, all of the seeds of America's destruction have been planted. And so once this strong man who's trying to hold on to the nation, uh, once he falls, and when he falls, it's a sad day for Christians all over the world, because as long as America is strong, Christians are in, in, in a good place. Once America comes down, <laughs> woe unto Christians and Jews. But in any case, uh, Islam died. It was dead. But now it's, come, it's in a revival mode. And uh, all over the world, they're reviving. And, and now this whole migrant uh, human right, they can now begin to penetrate nations. And if only people would study the history, they would understand how it works. But in this eighth beast, he says, even he is the eighth and is of the seventh. He doesn't say that the seventh is of the sixth. In fact, when he talks about the sixth, he says another one that's totally different is coming. And so this one Rome, Nebuchadnezzar never saw Rome. He saw himself, 
He saw Persia coming into Babylon. He saw Alexander the Great coming into Babylon. And he sees this final beast coming into Babylon. So this one he doesn't see because it has nothing to do with Babylon. And so this is uh, how, I, how I would interpret the scripture. And, and again, I'm not saying it's, it, this is so. I'm just saying, let's not only look west. So we're only looking west. It's got to be the beast from the west. It's got to be Europe. Maybe not. Maybe it's the beast from the east. And so let's just look both ways before crossing the street and search the scriptures. And as the scriptures say, this is what you should be looking for. Let's look west. Do we see it? And let's look east. Because this thing is going to happen. God says it's going to be a snare. It's going to happen right under the, the noses of the earth. But if we're watching, it's not going to catch us off guard. And so, uh, back to the scripture here, <clears throat> God says, O Assyrian, the rod of my anger. So the Assyrian is the rod of God's anger. <clears throat> so he says here, O Assyrian, the rod of my anger, and the staff of their hand is my indignation. So we have something else going on here now. We have... Uh, we know that Babylon is going to loom large in the end time, but God is also now saying Assyria. And so the way Isaiah is written, both Assyria and Babylon punish his people in the end time. Babylon was brought up to punish, um, uh, sorry, uh, Assyria was brought to punish Israel. Babylon was brought to punish Judah. Both Israel and Judah are punished in the end time, and both Assyria and Babylon fall at Christ's return. And so as we put two and two together, it becomes clear that Assyria, that Babylon, comes under Assyria. So from what I can see right now, Turkey, the Ottoman Empire, is going to come back to life. So it died, it was wounded to a fatal blow, and now its deadly wound is healed. And so what we see happening in Turkey today, and it's flexing its muscles, and it is the only empire that successfully subjugated all the Arab nations because of their ruthlessness. Arabs have always been fighting each other. Muhammad came with this ideology that, that did unite them, but they were always fighting each other. The Ottoman Empire, basically because of their organization and because of their ruthlessness, they were able to uh, govern the Arab nations. And so Erdogan sees this past greatness and he wants to revive that. So from the scriptures, it looks like Assyria will take control of Babylon, the, the seat of wickedness is in Babylon, and the people will be punished by the Chaldeans, but also by the Assyrian. And so the Assyrian is the rod of God's anger, and the staff in their hand is his indignation. Therefore it shall come to pass when? When the Lord has performed his whole work. So he calls it his strange work, he calls it his unbelievable work, he calls it his short work, and here he calls it his whole work. When he has performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, that's when Assyria will be punished. I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria does not come to an end until the return of Christ. And Babylon does not fall until the return of Christ. So Babylon and Assyria fall together. And so therefore it's clear that Babylon is overtaken by Assyria and the glory of his high looks. So that's, what, so that's again what Isaiah says, come down and sit in the ground. Uh, in uh, Isaiah 10, 24, Therefore thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people that dwell in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrian. So we who preach the good news, this is what we need to be saying to Zion. 
Don't be afraid of the Assyrian. He shall smite you with a rod, so that will happen, and shall lift up his staff against you after the manner of Egypt. So God is going to, the same way there was a first exodus, there will be a second exodus. So this is what's going to happen, but God is going to save. And there shall be a highway for the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria. So this is the end time, that the, his people will be gathered from Assyria, like as it was to Israel in the day that he came up out of the land of Egypt. So when God comes, this second exodus, uh, Assyria is going to loom large in, in this plan, and this unfolding. He says, I will break the Assyrian in my land. So the Assyrian is going to come into God's land, and we are to preach the good news to the land, to say, don't be afraid of the Assyrian. God is going to break the Assyrian. So when God returns, the Assyrian is broken. When God returns, Babylon falls. I will break the Assyrian in my land. So it's got to be in his land. And, and this is, you know, it's an ancient rivalries coming back. So the world, we have to see the world now as a contest or a controversy or a conflict between Isaac and Ishmael. Between Isaac and Ishmael. It's between Jacob and Esau. So all of that ancient hatred, which is embedded in the DNA, it comes to fruition in the end time. And everything goes back to its base. And so that's why we have Genesis, so that we can see the world through the lens of Genesis and understand the world through Revelation by bringing it all through the lens of Isaiah. That I will uh, break the Assyrian in my land and upon my mountains tread him underfoot. So he will die uh, in his land and upon the mountains of Israel. So the very mountains that the good news that Christ went up and down on, the Assyrian is going to be broken in those mountains. Then shall his yoke uh, depart from off them, so off his people, and his burden depart from off their shoulders. This is what's going to happen. Isaiah 19. In that day shall there be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian shall come into the Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria. This is a big deal because this is revealing to us who is the king of the north and who is the king of the south. The king of the north is Assyria. The king of the south is Egypt. Both of them are Islamic. And both of them hate God's people. And they both want to destroy God's people, but they want to destroy each other as well. And so there's going to be this, and that's Islam is 1400 years we have of this history. It's always been contentious. That's why Nebuchadnezzar had this vision of uh, iron and uh, mixed with clay. It's kind of a loose, they, they hate each other. Um, but the, the legs, so Rome, east and west, they were together for about 100 years. So first it was western, uh, the western part of the empire. And then there was an overlap with the Eastern Empire, but then the West fell, and the Eastern went on for another thousand years. But they, they weren't together. Whereas right from the beginning, uh, Islam split into Sunni and Shiite. And so those two have been running simultaneously together for 1,400 years. And so that's much more logical to me of the two legs. Because it's not like he's standing on one and then standing on the other. No, he's standing on both. So it seems to me, and this is pure speculation, because there is a prophecy that says that an oppressor will come into Egypt and oppress the people, and they will be looking for relief. It would appear to me that maybe the Shiites will conquer Egypt. And so it will be a Sunni-Shiite battle, both of whom hate Jerusalem and hate the people 
But in any case, all of this is going to be solved, and there's going to be a highway now. The king of the north and the king of the south uh, accessing each other and being at peace. And the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians shall serve with the Assyrians. So all of this conflict is finally over. In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. So finally the veil is lifted, and these people have repented, and they're happy to serve God, and Assyria, the work of my hands. So they were necessary, God utilized them, but now they've repented, and Israel, mine inheritance. So the king of the north, the king of the south, and Israel are all now uh, in uh, one uh, satisfied and fulfilled relationship with God. I'm going to stop there. Uh, and All I really wanted to cover right now is Isaiah 47, verse 1. Uh, and so we'll continue, God willing. We can finish the chapter. As I said, it's not a big chapter, but I just wanted to um, just share my perspective on, on the role of Babylon in the end time and that we mustn't drift from the Middle East, that the Bible is all about the land that he's promised to his people and the land surrounding the neighbors that are surrounding that land and the conflict between the descendants of Isaac and the descendants of Ishmael, the descendants of Jacob and the, the Edomites and all those surrounding nations that, that Israel should have gone in and conquered and, and destroyed their altars and set up the kingdom of Israel, but they didn't. And so for thousands of years, these peoples have been a thorn in Israel and Judah's side and their gods have been a thorn and a snare. And those gods in the end time now, because of Muhammad's work, they've all been consolidated into one God, which they call Allah. But all the practices, Islam is just a, a consolidation of, of all these pagan practices with a little bit of Judeo-Christian uh, practices mixed in as well. And it just confuses everybody. But it's not a religion. It's a political ideology. It's all about politics. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church, that's a religion. And these two are going to collude and work together. And, and that's one big uh, push for globalism. The other big push today is uh, communism. And we see that in, in countries like China. And so the question is, which globalist power will be successful in the end? Will it be the communists or will it be Islam? And uh, I look to Iran as an example, where the communists and the Muslims work together. But once uh, the Shah fell, and the Ayatollah Khomeini came into power, the first order of business was to round up all the communists and behead them. And so they were useful idiots. So we'll end there, and uh, God willing, we'll continue in chapter 47 uh, next week and, and do some Q&A next week, but we can also do a bit of chat tonight. So all of the God, we just have to be people who hang on to God's word and understand the power of God's word and understand that we serve, serve a God that never goes back on his word. And so this is where we can be confident and we can preach the gospel with all confidence when we understand exactly what it's saying. God bless Jesus Christ, Lord, King, Savior. What a mighty God we serve.